0: Listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our
1: church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Jesus has gone about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in Galilee, and then we read this from Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated.
0: Well, some of you know that in my free time, I enjoy running, going for good long runs with, you know, nothing in your ears where you can just uh, think about what's going on while being on your feet for uh, an hour or two. You know, just start going and ponder while you wander and just, uh, you know, find some new place to go. Uh, It's great physical activity. I do enjoy it, not just for the recreational purposes, I also like getting faster. And so I've set some goals for myself for like the next year, how I'd like to be able to advance as as a runner and all of that. So I'm looking for an edge, trying to find a way to get better, and I picked up a book called Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow. (laughs) And it's a bit of a different type of a runner's book, because instead of saying you need to do this, or don't do that, or you're an idiot if you do this, it just, every chapter tells the stories of what professional runners Do. Right? You can summarize it basically into this little stuff. The best runners eat real food. That's one of the chapters. You know, it doesn't say, thou shalt eat real food or thou shalt not eat edible food like substances. It's talking about McDonald's. It says, the best runners eat real food. It's an interesting book because it's not just, you know, do's and don'ts or a training regimen or a plan. It's just a picture of what a good life looks like for someone who's trying to get faster as a runner. And I find that hugely compelling. Don't tell me what to do or what not to do. Paint a picture of someone else doing it, and I'm way more likely to stay committed to the stuff that I should be doing or don't really want to do, right? Paint a picture. Show me what this looks like in real life, and I'm a whole lot more likely to take you seriously when you tell me don't eat fake food now you may not realize this but the Sermon on the Mount works the same way and especially the Beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount if you weren't here last week we're beginning we're at the beginning of a six-month walk through the Sermon on the Mount this is the great summary of Jesus's teaching that Matthew presents to us right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry Today, we're jumping into the beginning of the sermon, what's famously known as the Beatitudes. See, these aren't Beatitudes. They're, they're not a, a list of rules or the do's and don'ts for living a Christian life, and they're not, a, they're not a list of requirements for getting into heaven or a plan for how to get God to bless you. The Beatitudes are a beautiful picture of what a truly flourishing human life lived in relationship with God looks like. Now, as we dig into it, you may disagree with me there and say that's not actually all that beautiful of a life. But we'll dig into that a little bit more and what really makes it attractive. But as we jump into this, this is Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already as we jump into this, these beatitudes are going to show us what a good life looks like when it's lived in relationship with God in anticipation of His coming kingdom. So, Matthew chapter 5. Now, there's the introduction in those first two verses, and then verse 3 picks up with the first of these uh, beatitudes. Beatitude comes from the Latin word for the very first word in each of these statements, the word blessed. So, verse 3, blessed are, blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, before we get too much uh, further into this, I need to make sure that we're, we're all thinking the same thing when we hear the word blessed. So I'm going to nerd out for a minute. It's just a nerd alert for you all. Uh, if you love words, dig in. If you don't, I'll try to use some illustrations here in a minute as well to, to help explain it. Uh, because the word blessed, it, it feels like it should be pretty straightforward, but it's a little more complicated than you might guess. Here's the complication. Greek has two different words for two different things that are both translated into English using just one word, blessed. Two different concepts, related but different, translated using the same word, blessed. Now, here's the difference. One of the words has to do with divine speech that does something to a person, or for a person. This shows up in passages you're, you're familiar with. Like God saying to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I know that's an Old Testament reference. Hebrew also has two different words. And the greek and hebrew words parallel each other so one of them has to do with the divine speech from the outside i will bless you and its opposite is the curses i will bless those who bless you i will curse those who curse you so it's god's speech making something good or god's speech making something bad you see that it also shows up this same word this kind of blessing shows up in the new testament passages like the introduction to ephesians Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the sense of blessing that is God saying or doing something in a person's life, okay? God speaks a blessing. Now, the other word, the second word that we also translate into English using that same word, blessed, shows up, it's a little bit different. It shows up in passages like uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, you know, his delight is in the law of the Lord and, and all of that. It shows up there in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in passages like Jesus saying to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Well, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This word's a little different. It is not a word used to talk about divine speech that does something. This is the word used when you're trying to, from a human perspective, describe something. Usually, describe something good. It's the word you would use when you are trying to describe the type of circumstances or the situation a person is in that is good and favorable, conducive to their growth as a person and as a human being in relationship with God. Are you with me? Okay, I'm going to illustrate this. Uh, Imagine you are a plant. You can be any plant you choose. This is not a job interview question. You are a plant. If it helps, draw a little tomato plant or a beanstalk or something in your notes, okay? Now, imagine the gardener comes along and sees you, you little tomato plant planted there, looking all cute with your buds and everything, and and thinks, oh my, there are bugs all over my tomato plants. So what does the gardener do? Sprays you down with insecticidal soap and plucks off the bigger bugs and maybe puts some of the plant netting over the top of you so nothing else can get at you, right? This is action from the outside. You are blessed. The gardener has blessed you. You with me? Now, from the other perspective, you're planted in this cute little garden plot and you've got friends, you know, the peppers and the jalapenos and the squash that no one talks to because it's gross. Right? They're in this garden plot with you and they look at you and they see the the rich, soil that you are planted in, the the nutrients, the nutrient-rich soil. It's well-drained. You have good sunlight, and there's plenty of water. And they look at you and say, blessed is the one who lives in such soil. You see the difference? One is about something from the outside doing something to you. The other is a description of the state you are in that is conducive to your growth to your your flourishing. When when your friends, these other plants, say you're blessed, they're not referring to the action of God on your life. They're describing the realities in your life. They're saying that person is living in such a way and in a state of circumstances that is really good for their growth. It's good for them. They are blessed. Now, whenever someone makes a statement like this, they're they're making a proclamation, they're stating a fact, but inside of that fact is a a hidden invitation, sort of implicit invitation uh, into a way of being in the world that is conducive to this kind of flourishing. You know, when you say, blessed is the one who lives in such rich soil, you're also saying, you should try to get soil like that, right? Right? You should try to get your life into a state like that, into circumstances like that. If you really want to flourish, look for rich soil like that to plant yourself in, right? In this illustration, the plants can move around and think. So it's breaking down a little bit here, but you get what I'm saying. (laughs) They're saying the good life for a plant is life like that. You should try to get it. The problem with English is we only have one word that tries to capture both of those ideas, Or at least that's the problem now. We used to have two words for this. We used blessed when we were talking about what God was doing to a person or for a person or in a person, and we used the word happy when we described flourishing circumstances or good circumstances, that was back before happy just meant warm, fuzzy feeling. That was back when it still had the root from the Old Norse, meaning fortunate circumstances. And so saying, I'm happy meant I am in a state of circumstances conducive to my flourishing. And then it sort of became, I like where I am. And then it just became, I like this feeling. See how words change. Words are so fun. I love words. Anyway, what does all that have to do with these Beatitudes? Well, here's a clue. Latin also has two words, one to describe what God is doing, one to describe the soil you're planted in in this analogy. And the word you use to describe the soil you're planted in, those good circumstances, that state of affairs that leads to flourishing, is the word beatus, which is why we call these the beatitudes. So when we turn to the beatitudes themselves, now I hope you're with me. These statements aren't divine speech acting on our lives. They are describing what is good for us in our lives. So these statements are put here right at the front of the Sermon on the Mount so that we understand that what Jesus is doing in the sermon is describing what a good life lived in relationship with God in anticipation of His kingdom coming, what that life looks like. This is the kind of life we should strive for in order to be in the best soil for us to grow as human beings in relationship with God in anticipation of His kingdom coming. So, Jesus, by starting in a way that intentionally, by the way, echoes Psalm 1, starting in a way that paints a picture of what flourishing looks like he starts us out giving us this invitation to try to get this for ourselves to live into this picture of true happiness or the happy state of affairs now let's let's actually jump into these verse three Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, actually, we're not really jumping into it yet because there's a few structural things I need to point out. Uh, First, like I said, don't read blessed as God blesses those who are poor in spirit by giving them the kingdom of heaven. That's not the right way to read it. Read it as it's intended. If you are poor in spirit... Or mourning, or meek, or needing to be merciful as we go through them, you are in the right kind of soil, the right kind of circumstances for your flourishing. You're in a happy state, a state conducive to your growth. That way of reading these applies to all nine of these statements. If you find yourself in the place where you are hungering and thirsting, yearning for things to be right, for righteousness, for justice, you're in the exact right kind of circumstances for God to grow you exactly where he wants you now that's how the first half of each of these statements works and in the type of tradition uh, of wisdom literature this is normally that's all the all that you would get uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the way of of sinners or stands in this i can't remember it stands sits walks kneels you know all of that from psalm one uh, it's just blessed is the person who doesn't do that jesus uh, gives us a second half to each one of these because the first half doesn't look good. All nine of the things here, or at least eight of them, though I think the ninth one also, uh, all nine of these are describing things that we would normally look at and say, that's not flourishing. That's not good soil. I don't want that. And so Jesus says, okay, blessed, flourishing are those who… and then He gives us something we generally don't want, and then the second half is when He says, okay, but here's why. Because… And so the second half of each one of these statements is describing the result that comes from being planted in that type of soil, from finding yourself in those circumstances. If you are in a place of mourning, you are in the right kind of circumstances for your best growing because you will be fully comforted in the kingdom to come and can begin to experience some of that comfort now. Now, the second half, keep this in mind, the second half of these statements, it doesn't describe some sort of blessing that you get from God because you work hard to do the first. It's describing the natural intrinsic result of living in this first half. This is what naturally comes out of that, the second half. It's the built-in benefits to living that first half. So, if you find yourself in a place where you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, that's good ground to be planted in because you are already living out the character of a citizen of the kingdom of God. See how these work. Now, uh, let's go through these one by one, and I I want you to see the dissonance that comes through between the opening word, you know, blessed, flourishing are those who, and, and then the descriptions that come from there. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, this is not just the material poor, though in some ways of reading it, it it's the material poor who, because of their poverty, their spirits are being crushed. This is picking up from Old Testament language and Old Testament themes. This is the, the humble, pious person whose allegiance to God leads to their own suffering and their own disadvantage or even their own oppression. Nobody looks at that person from the outside and says, ah, yes, that is what someone who possesses the kingdom of God looks like. But Jesus says, well, actually, these ones who are crushed by their material or physical or spiritual poverty, these ones you think are outside the kingdom of flourishing, no, they're actually right in the center of it. The kingdom will be made up of people like this, so blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. And Jesus isn't talking just about the bereaved, but especially the, the sense of mourning that we pick up from, again, from the Old Testament story, that the mourning are the ones who are suffering and longing for God's kingdom to come. Jesus says that, that, that the ones who are overwhelmed by the, by the current sadness and anticipation of God setting all things right are the ones who are, who are flourishing. Because God will comfort them fully when the kingdom comes. But you can begin to taste it and anticipate it now. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5: Blessed are the meek. Meekness, you've probably heard. No one, no one sees meekness as a virtue except for us now having been influenced by 2,000 years of the Christian tradition. Before this, at this time, no one thinks of meekness as a virtue. To be meek is to humble, to be humble, to not throw your weight around, to rely on God to give you what you need, to trust Him to deliver instead of going out and trying to take it for yourself. The meek person isn't in your face shaking things up, trying to get what they want, They're humbly waiting for God. Jesus is saying, look, paradoxically, the gentle, the meek person who doesn't try to get what they want, that's the person who's actually flourishing. Because in the kingdom to come, they'll inherit the earth. Everything they wouldn't go out and grab for themselves now will be given to them when the kingdom comes. You can be comforted by anticipating that today. Blessed are the meek. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And there's a, the picture here is of a deep, overwhelming hunger and thirst. Very few of us have ever experienced, I'm sure, the type of hunger or thirst where all, every thought you have is focused solely on, I need something to eat or something to drink or I will die. It's the person whose sole orientation is on righteousness in that sense. I need this or I will die. That's the, the person who's pictured here. Now, it's not righteousness that we tend to read it when we're reading Paul's letters, right? Like a, a moral standing before God. It's righteousness in the sense of, of doing justly. The person who hungers and thirsts for their own doing to be just in everything that they do. For others to do justly for the world to treat people justly or for God to come back and set everything right you know, for ultimate justice the person who sits in that desperation Jesus says is truly flourishing even as they experience the deep pain that awareness of injustice brings and I don't just mean injustice out there but injustice in here The person who sits in that and hungers and thirsts for it to be made right is flourishing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. That's a fun one. None of us want to be in a situation where we have to show mercy, right? Where someone has wronged us and we get to walk into that situation and be gracious and merciful. Does that just light you up in the morning, the opportunity to get up and show somebody mercy? No, and yet Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. The merciful ones, if you find yourself in a situation where you are required, the right thing to do is to show someone mercy and forgiveness for a way they have wronged you, you are in the best possible state for your growth. That's good soil to be planted in blessed are the merciful because in the kingdom to come, they will be shown mercy. You can begin to experience it now, but you are already exhibiting one of the key virtues of the kingdom to come. So, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. This is the one that people argue about. Is this all positive, or is there a little bit of negative in it? I think there's still a little hint of negative in it. How many of us are able to describe our hearts, our desires, the seat of everything we are, as fully integrated, 100% pure, no dividing, you know, will, no conflicting desires, no, I really want this, but I also really don't, none of that. Any of us? Well, blessed are those, flourishing are those who who sit in that discontent, longing for their hearts to be unified, to will simply one thing, and to want to do just the one. Jesus is saying these are the ones who are truly flourishing, who sit in this desire to be fully integrated, because that desire will be met fully when the kingdom comes But we can begin to anticipate it in increasing measure now. Blessed are the pure in heart. You will know God fully one day and begin to know Him now. Verse 9: Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, it's not a role many of us are called to. It's hard enough to find peacekeepers these days, much less peacemakers people who are willing to sacrifice of themselves, to give of themselves in order to bring peace where peace did not exist. Of course, God is the ultimate peacemaker, giving up of Himself in order to bring peace where before there was only dissension and conflict and rivalry. Jesus is saying those who are in situations where the only way for peace to come about is for them to sacrifice and give of themselves to make peace. They are the ones who are planted in good soil. They are the ones who are blessed. They're flourishing. That's what it means to grow in relationship with God, anticipating the kingdom to come. Now, why... Are they the blessed ones? Well, because when the kingdom comes, they're going to be the ones who are recognized as already just like their father. We call the children of God. This is who God is. If you're doing this now, when he comes, be like, those are the ones who already look like me and act like me. So blessed are the peacemakers. Finally, verse 10 and verse 11, which is kind of an expansion of verse 10 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all manner of all kinds of false things, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. "I mean, There's nothing worse than being slandered and attacked and excluded for doing the right thing or for insisting that others do the right thing or for wanting God to just put everything right and waiting and depending on Him to do it rather than going out and forcing it to happen yourself. And yet, paradoxically, Jesus says that those who suffer in this way are the ones who are truly flourishing because they are the inheritors of the kingdom. And He goes even further in verse 12 and says, there will be a great reward for them in heaven. Every single one of these beatitudes has this twist to it. Over and over, it seems like Jesus is uttering paradoxes, describing scenes that feel utterly like non-flourishing, mourning, and persecution, poverty of spirit, and desperation for things to be made right, or a longing for all of my desires to be integrated and whole. Each of these scenes of decided non-flourishing, Jesus is saying, is actually the best position for us to be in, the best soil for us to be planted in. Does this feel like flourishing to you? Is this what you pray for your kids, that they would mourn and be hurt and be required to show mercy? Yet Jesus says this is where you grow. It's almost like Jesus is telling us that flourishing, happiness, is not about rearranging our external circumstances into the best possible configuration. It's almost like He's saying that true flourishing is suffering as one of His followers while we wait for God to bring heaven back to earth. that running book that I mentioned earlier. You know, I like McDonald's. And the idea of not eating edible food-like substances is not appealing to me. They taste great. That doesn't feel... Telling myself I can't eat any of that stuff doesn't feel like flourishing to me. And yet, if it's true that flourishing runners eat real food, then what feels to me like non-flourishing is actually for my best it may be it it might be that jesus has a better idea of what's good for me than i do for myself so as we think about these beatitudes like okay what do what do we do with these in our own lives Uh, a couple of thoughts come to mind And the first is exactly that, we have to acknowledge that Jesus might have a better idea of what is good for me, of what kind of soil I should be in, than I have for myself. Because you know the way these statements work. Anytime somebody says, like Jesus is saying here, any, anytime somebody says, hey, here's the good life. Let me paint a picture of what it looks like for you. This is what good living is. There's a built-in invitation to order your life around that picture. How do I get that? What do I need to do to get that? We want to achieve that image of, of flourishing for ourselves. And yet Jesus gives a picture that at first glance doesn't look all that great. It's going to require us to acknowledge that He has a better idea for where we should be planted than maybe we do. And this is crucial because if we can't make that step, we're not going to make much sense of the rest of the sermon. When Jesus starts talking about things that are really serious, like anger and retaliation or sexuality or anxiety, if we don't already believe that Jesus has a better idea of what good is for me than I do for myself, we'll have a real hard time taking him seriously on anything he says there. We're just going to keep looking at it and saying, well, that's not flourishing. That's not what I want. And Jesus is going to keep saying, I I know you don't think so, but trust me on this. We've got to learn to embrace Jesus's definition of good soil, not our our own ideas about it. Uh, Second, because we're going to be in this type of soil, we need to embrace what one author calls unanticipated flourishing. Right? We don't tend to go looking for situations where we will have to mourn or be merciful or make peace or that require humility and meekness or where we endure persecution and suffering and, and yet when we find ourselves in those situations, Jesus has us there for a reason. There are opportunities for growth there. It's good soil even if it doesn't feel like it, just looking back on the last two years, I have learned more and grown more in leadership abilities and skills in this COVID leadership crucible uh, than in any other time in training or ministry experience. (laughs) I'm not saying I want to do it again, but I am saying what I thought was a situation we needed to get out of, God was saying, no, actually, this is a thing you need to grow in, often we're like, God, get me out of it, and he says, I'm actually more interested in growing you in it. That's kind of my third thought in terms of application, besides recognizing Jesus has a better idea of what good soil is than we do, or embracing that unanticipated flourishing. The third thought is, I think we need to stop asking God, what are you teaching me in this? Because that always implies, what are you teaching me, God? Just tell me, and then it'll stop. Not, what are you teaching me in this, but how are you growing me in this? Not, what do you want me to learn, but who do you want me to be in this experience? What are you trying to grow me into? Who are you trying to grow me up to be like through this? Now, if that's not a leading question... Let me just give you the answer. Another author looks at these beatitudes and calls them a rich reservoir of black gold. He says there's there's divine gold of priceless worth, but when we look at it, it appears to us as only darkness. He invites us to stare into what he calls the darkness of these beatitudes, the suffering and the mourning and the humility and uh, the desperation. He says when we stare into that darkness, it naturally strikes us as antithetical to the, you know, good life that we want for ourselves and for our kids, and yet this is gold because this is exactly how Jesus lived his life. Jesus is not giving us teaching or telling us to be somewhere that He has not been Himself. You want humility? Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to Me, and in Me you will find rest for your souls. You want mourning and grieving. Well, Matthew shows us Jesus hungering and thirsting for righteousness, sitting over Jerusalem, just crying His eyes out at the people that God has chosen who have rejected Him, wanting them to come into relationship with God through Him. You want mercy. Matthew shows us Jesus' Showing mercy and compassion over and over again, providing food for the crowds, healing the sick, giving rebuke to the prideful. Jesus shows mercy. You want peace? Well, the resurrected Jesus says to His followers, do not be afraid. Go and tell, and I will be with you, even to the very end. God is not growing in us anything that His own Son has not already learned. And God is not planting us anywhere that He has not already been. These Beatitudes show us a father's love for a child who doesn't know what's good for himself or herself. The Beatitudes show us a beautiful life, what a, what a life lived in relationship with God in anticipation of the coming kingdom looks like as we suffer for His sake and are comforted by the hope in His promise that one day in His kingdom, He will return and set all things right. So blessed are those who hear these words. And do them. Father, you have painted for us a picture in these few short statements, a picture of what our truest good and our greatest happiness in you looks like. Uh, And yet we confess. It is not a picture that most of us, all of us, would immediately run towards. So, Father, capture our hearts with the love that Jesus has for us, that in him we would see this beautiful life lived out and desire it for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.